MacCast, Sunday, February 26th, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How are you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week of Apple going-ons and happenings and all the stuff in the Apple and Mac community. I hope you are having a wonderful day, weekend, evening, morning, afternoon, whatever it may be. Uh, and, I, you know, I have to say, I'm kind of wondering, this time of year, does it feel to you like it feels to me like we're in a little bit of a waiting mode. I feel like in the fall, we have all these big Apple announcements, all these things happen. Then we get through the holiday season and we get into the first part of the year. And it used to be Mac world time, right? So there used to be a lot of stuff happening. And nowadays, there's just not a lot going on. We're, we're in a waiting pattern until Apple does something in the spring. And it feels like it takes forever um, I know we're only into February, so, you know, it's just feeling like that to me. But regardless, there is some exciting things going on. We do have things to talk about, uh, you know, things related to maybe what's coming this spring. Uh, we're going to talk about new M-series processors. We're going to talk about that Apple event a little bit. We're going to get into some Apple TV stuff. Yeah, some interesting things with um, subscribers and whether we're uh, staying on Apple TV Plus or not. We're going to get into some tablet news and also um, some details on out-of-app store purchases or non-in-app purchase. I don't know how to say that, but basically the payment systems, Apple's being forced in some countries, as you know, because we've talked about it, to offer in-app payments that are third-party systems. And we have a few more details about that. And some developers are maybe not happy. So we'll dig into all of that in the news. And then we're going to get to some follow-up on our discussion on KVMs. I have an interesting new development there, new product to talk about, or a new option, I guess I should say, to talk about. Uh, we have some questions about the music player on iOS. We have questions about payment methods for making purchases on Apple's services. We'll try to help somebody out with that. And then a really cool, really cool thing of the moment for you that came in from a listener. So that's something we've been doing. We've been asking listeners to give us some of their favorite products and Apple software and stuff like that. And I'm getting some great things from the community. So have another good one for to share with you in uh, this episode. So should be a great one. Before, but before we dive in, I do want to take a quick moment and thank you show sponsor. And that is Kanji. You know, if you work in IT or tech support in an Apple environment and you have to manage multiple devices and machines, you know how time consuming that can be. As an Apple admin, the more you let users control which apps are installed on their devices, the better it is for you. And not only that, you make your users a lot happier. And I can say firsthand, because I work in an environment, it's extremely locked down. And I can tell you it's extremely frustrating for me and my system admins that every time I want to get something installed or updated on my machine, I have to make a ticket. I have to wait. It takes a really long time. 
and all I need is some software to do my work. With Kanji, you can show users a curated list of apps that they can install on their own, and you can customize that self-service app with your own branding, help text, and software categories. And apps in the Kanji auto app catalog can also be set to deliver via their self-service. And once installed, they are kept patched automatically. So no more of those tickets like that I have to deal with all the time. You can empower your users. And Kanji has been focused on device autonomy through automated remediation since they first started. If an app is uninstalled or a setting is changed, the Kanji agent detects it and actually fixes it, which also saves you time and stress. Kanji can also help you protect your endpoints by enforcing over 150 pre-built security controls, and these controls go beyond the scope of the MDM framework to help you secure your devices, and they also automatically remediate even when your devices are offline. Go to kanji.io slash maccast for a free demo or trial. That's K-A-N-D-J i.io slash maccast kanji.io slash maccast for a free trial or demo and a big thank you to kanji for their support of the maccast we have been going back and forth the past couple months if you've been listening to the show on when and where we expect to see apple announce a new updated larger imac there have been many rumors that Apple is working on a 27-inch or maybe even larger version of the iMac. And we've had all this speculation, well, when is it going to happen? Well, now Bloomberg's Mark Gurman is saying that Apple will make a larger iMac this year, but he doesn't really give us a hard date. He does say he expects the design to be similar to that of the 24-inch iMac, maybe not in all the colors, probably more likely in pro colors because it's also believed that Apple will brand it as a Pro model, so iMac Pro. And because of that, the processors we're expecting are going to be similar to the M1 Pro and M1 Max chips that are found in the new 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros. Meanwhile, display analyst Ross, Ross Young is also out there saying he is sort of willing to put a date on the release of the next 27-inch iMac Pro and also shared some additional features. He said... In a tweet, quote, we expect panel shipments from June, but the product may not launch until August or September. So while not an exact date, he's kind of giving us a time frame looking like more in the fall range, um, which is when Apple will typically bring out a lot of a lot of Mac products. So we might be waiting on this one for a while, despite all the rumors we've been getting that it might be happening this spring. It's looking less and less likely or less like that's going to be the case. Um, he also said that the iMac display may not be getting as many dimming zones as the MacBook Pro displays. So it is expected to be a mini LED panel, but he says likely not IGZO since the iMac wouldn't need the power consumption benefits. So Apple would stick to um, more of the traditional technologies and then on the plus side, he is still predicting that it will have a 120 hertz variable refresh rate. So we're going to get ProMotion on it. And mini LED, ProMotion, all that stuff was also 
kind of rumored from German as well. So Young and German are kind of on the same page on that one. And I guess the big news now is that uh, Ross Young is really predicting that we're going to see it later. Um, and German is kind of hedging his bets toward that. So expect it to come out um, later in the year rather than sooner. And so while we may not be expecting a new iMac Pro this spring, there still are a lots of signs of the spring Apple event. A report this week from 91 Mobiles says that they're hearing from industry sources that a new model iPhone, an entry-level iPad, and possibly a new model iPad Air have entered into India for quote-unquote testing purposes. These appear to be the same models that were referenced recently in a filing that Apple made to the Eurasian Economic Commission. I think we talked about that in either the last episode of the MacCast or the one prior to that. And according to Makatakara, they say suppliers have actually begun production on the new fifth-generation iPad Air and third-generation iPhone SE. Not only that, they reaffirm basically what we've heard before about those two products, that the iPhone SE design and form factor is going to largely remain the same, but be updated with an A15 Bionic chip and support 5G, and that the iPad Air will also retain the existing design, but adopt some of the features from the recently updated iPad Mini, specifically an A15 Bionic chip, a 12-megapixel ultra-wide front camera with center stage support, 5G, and the quad LED True Tone Flash. So those are expected to be the updates. As for when the next Apple event is going to be, Bloomberg has reported that they believe that Apple is targeting something on or near March 8th. They claim the virtual event will focus on that iPhone SE 3 and the updated iPad Air, and also the release of iOS 15.4, which is going to contain some big features that we've been waiting on, things like universal control and face ID with a mask. So some good things coming there. Bloomberg is also hedging its bets a little bit, saying that Apple is also planning a new Mac with Apple-designed chips, and that they could come out as early as this March. So maybe we're going to get a Mac mixed up in this announcement. Possible candidates could be the Mac Mini, the Mac Pro we've been waiting on, the iMac Pro that we just talked about, although, again, that one's probably not likely, or a redesigned MacBook Air. For me, I'm guessing that none of the above is going to be at this event, but if they did go with some sort of Mac, I'd put my money on that MacBook Air or that Mac Mini. We're just going to have to wait and see. German also did lay out a few more details on his predictions for upcoming consumer Mac models coming out this year. He said he's expecting Apple to bring out an updated version of the entry-level MacBook Pro, a 24-inch iMac update, a Mac Mini update, and that MacBook Air update, all happening over the next year with updated Apple Silicon likely going to be the announcement of the M2, so the successor to Apple's M1 processor that they introduced last year. And specifically on the entry-level MacBook Pro, he noted that the design will match the new high-end models ditching the touch bar. And what's interesting about that, and I had forgotten that the entry-level uh, M1 MacBook Pro still had a touch bar, so 
Apple killing that off in, in, in this next model, if they do, would mark the complete purge from the entire lineup of the touch bar. Touch bar gone, um, probably never to return again. Never really took off. Um, you know, I have one on my MacBook Pro, and I have to be honest, I don't use it very much. It's kind of nice when, when I do use it, um, but I think I prefer the physical keys, and seems like a lot of other people agreed with that, so Apple reverse direction on that one. He does say that to keep the entry-level cost low, they're not going to use a mini-LED display like they do on the higher-end models. They'll stick with LCD, keeping the cost down. And um, again, we're expecting that sometime this year. Didn't really give a date. Could be, again, as soon as um, you know this March event. But we'll just have to wait and see. A new report from the Wall Street Journal this past week says that hit films and shows like the Tom Hanks drama Greyhound have drawn a large number of subscribers to Apple TV+, but that, unfortunately, not many of them tend to stick around. This is based on data from Antenna. With Greyhound, for example, they estimate that about 60,000 people signed up to Apple TV+, to watch that film but only about half, they say, stayed on the service after six months. And a matter of, as a matter of fact, 30% dropped off within a month or two. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that this phenomenon is not unique to Apple. Other services like Disney Plus are seeing similar behavior from subscribers. According to the report, they say the key for keeping subscribers is one that I find not too surprising, and that's have good content, and a steady stream of it. So Apple actually might have a winning formula here because if you've been paying attention, they have had a steady stream of really good content and they're dropping big films with big name stars every few months. And they point out that that is the key winning formula. They say having a big hit movie on the service every quarter and popular shows like Ted Lasso that release new episodes weekly tend to keep subscribers on the service and hooked longer. One of the reasons why we're seeing so many series, I would imagine, move to, and I actually find this somewhat annoying because I like to binge watch stuff, and I think a lot of people here do as well, but it's one of the reasons why they release one week at a time in the more traditional model, right? It's to keep people on the service, to keep you hooked, keep you on there, probably till the next thing comes along, and then hope you keep subscribed. So, it's all a little bit of a mind game, but um, Apple is, I think, primed pretty well to kind of take advantage of this, even though they don't have a lot of content. The The other thing that you can do is have a large back catalog, say like Netflix. And so there's lots of other things for people to watch once they've gotten through that, you know, hit movie or that one TV series that they sort of signed up for. So keeping them around, that can help as well. On the subject of popular series, it does look like Apple's new murder mystery series, The After Party, started off pretty well for the service. According to the numbers from Real Good, they say it was one of the top 10 streamed shows in the U.S. in its opening week. They told iMore that the show came in actually at number 8. Considering all the competition with things like The Book of Boba Fett, I'd have to say that's not too shabby. And the show, if you haven't... Uh, Heard of it is a murder mystery show. It takes place at an after party for a high school reunion. Each episode focuses on a particular character who is one of the potential subjects. And in each episode, you get the story of that night 
from the character's point of view, and each one is told using a different film style and genre that actually matches the character's personality. I watched the first three episodes so far, and I have found it very, very enjoyable. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out and you enjoy murder mystery type shows, it has a nice little hook and a nice spin, and uh, it's fun. It's funny. It's kind of a comedy. So check it out if you haven't had a chance to see that one yet. Apple also announced this week a new series coming to Apple TV Plus based on a novel by Anne Napolitano called Dear Edward. The 10-episode series will be written, showrun, and executive produced by Jason Katmus, who has done Friday Night Lights, Parenthood, and As We See It, and stars Connie Britton, Taylor Schilling, and Colin O'Brien, it tells the story of a young boy who survives a plane crash that kills every other passenger, including his family. No word on when that show will be released. New data this past week from IDC shows that Apple's iPad sales declined about 8.6% in the fourth quarter. They estimate that Apple shipped about 17.5 million iPads versus the 19.1 million they shipped in the same quarter in 2020. Still, it's not all bad news because Apple was actually able to increase their overall share of the tablet market, grabbing 38% of it for the quarter and 34.2% share for the entire year. So not too shabby. Overall, tablet sales are declining, so Apple gaining more share is actually a good thing, and uh, iPads remain popular. It's just that a lot of people really bought iPads as we moved into the pandemic, so a lot of people took that opportunity to do their upgrades, and so upgrades just have slowed a bit. Actually, tablet sales have been slowing for a while now, but good to still see Apple gaining market share. And then finally in the news for this week, you remember that Netherlands ruling that Apple must allow developers of dating apps to be able to use payment systems other than Apple's in-app purchases? You know, so far we got details on what Apple was going to do, which was allow them to offer alternative third-party payment systems either in-app or link to a payment system outside the App Store, but you weren't able to do both. You could do one or the other. You also can't offer Apple's in-app payment system and one outside the App Store. So it's pretty limited um, from that side of things. But we also knew that Apple was going to take some sort of cut of those payments, but they hadn't provided details on exactly how much they were going to still take. Well, this week we found out exactly how much, and it's 27%. So just a paltry 3% less than if the developer used Apple's built-in in-app payment system, where Apple takes 30%. And Apple says the 3% reduction is the, of, in the fee is, quote, a reduced rate that excludes value related to payment processing and related activities. And while 3% may seem small, they're not wrong with how they're stating it because most payment processing out there is roughly about 3%. It's a 3% cut paid to the payment processor. So if Apple is not processing the payment, uh, that portion of it, the value of it, at least to Apple apparently, is uh, 3%, the value of that service. And so I guess that's how they're setting that rate. 
Um, that rate would actually make it very hard for most developers to use anything other than Apple's in-app payment system. And I think that's exactly what Apple's intending. Uh, and that's because in addition to having to integrate a third-party payment system into their app, which is, I would presume, a little bit trickier than just using the stuff Apple has built in, they also are responsible for having to then record and report all sales of digital goods and content to Apple within 15 calendar days of the end of Apple's fiscal quarter. So they have a whole reporting thing so that Apple can get their 27%. And then also Apple would no longer be able to help them with things like refunds, with purchase history, with subscription management. So you lose a lot of features and functionality by going outside the in-app payment system. So it's kind of crazy how this is playing out, but probably not unexpected. I think we all expected Apple to fight this. As a matter of fact, they're, of course, appealing to the decision in the Netherlands. They're kind of treating all these cases on a case-by-case basis, country-by-country basis, depending upon these rulings. But more of it is coming Apple's way. We know there's a lot of uh, legislation going through the U.S. right now to kind of change a lot of Apple's policies. But Needless to say, not all developers are very happy with Apple's decision here, yeah, but well, you have to wait and see you know, how the fallout happens. But for now, that's Apple's decision and how they're treating the thing in the Netherlands. A little bit crazy. Uh, I'd love to know your thoughts and opinions on this, especially if you're a developer. Um, if you want to email in or send in an audio comment, shoot it to maccast at gmail.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. But with that... That is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank another show sponsor, and that is Hunter Douglas. You know, who doesn't love to live well, to be perfectly at ease, in comfort, and in style? Hunter Douglas can help you do just that with their innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems so advanced they can be scheduled to automatically adjust to the optimal position throughout the day. Perhaps it's the way your shades diffuse harsh sunlight to cast beautiful glow across your room or being able to enjoy the view outside the window while protecting your privacy inside. Or maybe it's the the superior insulation the shades provide, keeping you warmer in winter, cooler in summer, and lowering your utility bills. Or it's simply that Goldilocks moment when you walk into a room and everything about it looks and feels just right. And when you tap into Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology, your shades can be set to automatically reposition for the perfect balance of light, privacy, and insulation morning, noon, and night. And what's great about PowerView technology from Hunter Douglas is that it's HomeKit compatible. That is so cool. It means you can easily integrate it with the Home app and your iOS devices, your Macs, and your HomePods, and then you can build automations to fully control your Hunter Douglas window shades, all seamlessly integrated with your current Apple ecosystem. And that is amazing. So live beautifully with Hunter Douglas, enjoying greater convenience, enhanced style, and increased comfort in your home throughout the day. Visit hunterdouglas.com slash maccast today for your free style gets smarter design guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for dressing your windows. That's hunterdouglas.com slash maccast for your free design guide. And a big thank you to Hunter Douglas for their support of the show. 
As you may be aware, over the past few episodes, we have been discussing a listener question. Somebody had written in and asked about KVM keyboard video mouse solutions for the Mac or just for current times, really. This was something back in the day that you used to have if you had multiple computers and you wanted to control them with a single mouse and keyboard and display. And there aren't a lot of really great solutions out there right now to kind of do that. Um, and it's just become more of a need as more people are working from home. They might have a, a work computer as well as their own personal computer and maybe don't have enough, enough desk space or the, you know, really want to uh, have two mice and keyboards and, and, you know, four monitors or whatever it might be. It gets a little bit crazy, right? And so the idea of being able to hook up one set of those to two different computers is really, really appealing. So we've been just kind of talking back and forth, going over different solutions and options. And one of the ones that came up, I think I mentioned this the last time, was what's called an IP or KVM over IP switch. And these are a solution, but they are very, very expensive. They're basically designed to extend keyboard, video, and mouse signals from any computer or server over TCP IP on your local area network, on your LAN. And they're mainly used in enterprise applications. They can be very expensive. They start like around $300, $500 and go up to several thousands of dollars. So I threw it out there as a solution. I don't think it's really something that's targeted at or designed necessarily for home consumers. But Peter emailed me about a project that actually lets you build one of these things, one of these KVM IP setups using a Raspberry Pi and a little piece of hardware called a hat, which is a thing that you connect to your Raspberry Pi to give it additional functionality. The project is called Pi KVM. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com if you're interested. And according to the site, they say you can set up and run one of these KVM over IP systems for as little as $30 to $100, depending upon the features and how you want to set it up. Uh, I will say I looked this over. I watched some videos about it, and it's definitely not for the faint of heart. You definitely have to be like a techie DIY type person. Um, and it sounds like there might be some challenges in getting this thing kind of set up and working on the Mac, but you know, we as Mac users are often used to that. Uh, but to me, it basically looks like a hardware version of VNC virtual network client. So you could do a lot of this stuff, I think in software with your Mac, but if you want more of a hardware solution, this might be the way to go. And you basically have to access the Raspberry Pi to act as your remote on the connected machines. Now, the advantage of this is because it's hardware-based, it's on the Raspberry Pi, you can basically run your machines headless and you can get into that Raspberry Pi regardless of what's going on with the Mac. And it has some advanced features. Um, I don't know if you can do this on the Mac, but it sounds like you can tap into the power and control power. You can control rebooting. Um, since it's really the Raspberry Pi that's kind of acting as the brain of this whole operation. So seems pretty cool. Does have some significant limits to be aware of. Uh, biggest in my mind was that video is limited to 1080p at 50 hertz. So if you're looking for higher resolution on your display, something like that, that might be a no-go. There's also no sound. Um, so it's really not like 
working traditionally on two computers that are set up and sitting right in front of you. This is really about uh, remote control. But one really cool thing is, is it does say you could set this up to remote control an iPad over uh, KVM IP with the right hardware and, and kind of setup. I don't know what that would look like, but it sounds very, very interesting. So might be something fun to play around with. At the end of the day, um, I think running VNC um, might be easier if this is the kind of solution you're looking looking for. So, uh, you know, using an app like Screens on the iPad or um, screens on your Mac, whatever it might be, and just setting up a, a software VNC solution, a virtual network client or remote desktop kind of solution versus, uh, you know, that this I think is probably the way to go, maybe a little bit easier. But again, it was an interesting idea and something I wasn't aware of. And it certainly brings the price down to where, you know, we as mere mortals and not an IT department can probably tap into this kind of solution. Um, ultimately though, I think it's really not where we started, right? Uh, VNC or remote desktop is a way to go to control multiple machines with a single mouse and keyboard and, and, and display, but it's not the traditional version of a KVM. So I think I'm still kind of seeking out that ultimate KVM solution. Uh, but here's an option and, uh, you may want to just, uh, go with it and check it out. So again, I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. And Peter, thank you for, uh, sending this in. I found it very, very interesting. Rod emailed me this week and asked me if there was a setting or a way to remove, remove the music player app from the lock screen. And what's going on here is if you're using any kind of media app on your iOS device, so say you're using the music app or the podcast app, or could be even a third-party app like YouTube, um, any of the streaming services, Netflix, uh, the TV app, doesn't really matter. If you're using any kind of media app and you're playing some content on there and you stop it, and then you lock your device and you come back to the lock screen, what you'll notice is you'll have the player up there on the lock screen. And in Rod's case, uh, what was bugging him about this was that the player covers his wallpaper, and he has a really nice wallpaper that he'd like to see, and he was just wondering, is there a way to disable that? I'm not really interested in that feature. I don't use it from the lock screen. I'd really like it to just go away. And I figured, hey, there's got to be some sort of setting or something like that. So I went poking around and looking, and I absolutely didn't find anything. Um, I found several articles claiming things that would work, uh, specifically turning off the lock screen and banner notifications for the app. So like going into notifications, selecting the music app, and turning off the options for having a banner and a, um, a lock screen notification. That did not work. Um, I tried it; did not work for me. Uh, a lot of people are saying, "Well, if you you know do that setting and then reboot your phone, um, it will go away." And they're a hundred percent correct, <laughs> but that's only because that works because it was the same as the solution that I found. The only solution I found that actually worked for me, and that was actually completely closing the app with the media content. So. Before you lock your device, you basically have to go into the app switcher and completely 
completely quit that app. So it could be the music app, like I said, the pod doesn't matter, whatever media app. Basically swipe up from the bottom of your screen and hold to bring up the app switcher and then find the app and then flick up on it to close it completely. And then if you do that and then go to your lock screen, uh, it won't detect that you have any media playing or that you've been playing any media and therefore it won't show the player on the lock screen. So that was the only way I could figure out how to do it, Rod. Uh, but I'm going to throw it out to the community because more often than not, I've been surprised there's some sort of setting or trick or something that somebody out there knows that's a different way of controlling this. So maybe there could be, but this was the only thing that worked for me. If you have something different, send it in, give us an audio comment, or just shoot me an email, maccast at gmail.com. And if somebody comes up with something, I will definitely share it with the rest of you. Dan emailed me this week with a question about payments, uh, specifically in Apple apps. Dan asked if there was a way to control the default payment method that's used when making purchases using your Apple ID. And he was specifically talking about the music app, but this would apply to TV, books, uh, doesn't really matter. Any app where you would make a purchase that's tied to your Apple ID. Um, and in Dan's case, I believe what he was asking about is uh, a way to make a payment using a credit card versus the Apple ID balance because he said he's planning on using that for purchasing a new Mac MacBook. It used to be back in the day when you got a gift card, it was specifically tied, I think, to a service, either iTunes or you know the Apple Store. Now I think it all goes into a single account uh, sort of balance under your Apple ID. And so unfortunately, the way it works, as, as far as I can tell, and from all my testing, is that if you have an Apple ID balance, so you've gotten a gift card, you redeem that, you put it into your Apple ID account, and the balance is there, any purchase you make on any of Apple's services or through the App Store uh, will automatically deduct from that balance first before charging your card on file. So it doesn't really matter what credit card you have there. This is actually a trick that we gave because people would ask, hey, uh, I share an account with a spouse or a member of my family and my credit card is on the account, but I want them to be able to buy with their own funds. Um, one way around that potentially is to have them use a gift card and just put that money in there when they make their purchase. Now, again, the problem there is that if that balance, if they have any balance remaining after making that purchase, the next purchases are going to be deducted from that. And that includes like auto-renewed services. It includes subscription apps, all those sorts of things. So it gets a little bit complicated, and you can really drain your balance pretty quickly if you're not paying attention. And I think that might be what's happening uh, to you, Dan. So... My only advice, the only way I know where you could avoid this from happening is to not redeem your gift cards into your account until you're actually ready to use that money and make your purchase. So you just kind of kind of sit on them, which I think could be a little bit dangerous depending upon uh, how good you are at keeping track of things like that. But you know, put your gift cards in a safe place. Wait to redeem them when you are going to make your MacBook purchase on, I would assume you're going to use the App Store app. So make that purchase there and uh, just don't put them into your account. And that'll prevent, you know, when you go to make a 
TV purchase or a movie purchase or, or a music purchase or something like that from it pulling from your balance and then it'll just use your card on file. Um, if you really did want to change which payment method you were using, because you can put multiple cards into your Apple ID, but as you probably know, when you make a purchase, it just pulls from your default card. So if you want to change your default card, you can control that. Um, from the music app, for example, on the Mac, you would go into the music app, you would go under the account menu and choose account settings, and then you'll have to authenticate with your Apple ID. You can click on manage payments, and then you can drag your payment methods around, and whichever one is the topmost payment method is the default method. On iOS, it's pretty similar. You go into settings, you tap on your name, you tap on payment and shipping. You, again, might have to sign in with your Apple ID, and then you can tap edit and drag using the little order icon to uh, place whichever credit card you want to be the default on top. And that, whatever's the first card, that's going to be the card that's going to be used when you're making purchases. So uh, you can change it that way if that's what you're looking to do, but I have a feeling you were more interested in the Apple ID balance question. And yeah, there you just have to avoid putting money into your balance until you're ready to use it. So I hope that helps you out. Um, and thank you for that question. And then finally, uh, for this week, I have a thing of the moment. This one comes from a listener, and it's really cool. I had no idea this existed. Um, but, you know, we have the HomePod Mini, which is a great home audio device. 99 bucks. It's a great price point. It sounds amazing. It obviously integrates really well with your Apple ecosystem. So if you're invested in Apple and want to get sound all over your house, it's a great way to go. But maybe you don't have 99 bucks to spend on every room in your house. Or maybe you want to occasionally, you know, take the HomePod out into the backyard. Maybe you're having a barbecue or something like that and you want to get some music out there. You're just out there relaxing. Um, as long as you're near your Wi-Fi and can get connected, this product can actually help you out. And what it is, it's a battery base for the HomePod Mini. It comes from a company called Mission Accessories. Again, I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. It came from a listener, Brian, who said he got one of these, and he said it's really, really cool. And it allows you to turn your HomePod Mini into a battery-powered portable speaker so you can carry it around from room to room and it's got a really cool design it's kind of got this domed base it comes in either black or white and then above that it has this little cradle that actually securely holds on to your HomePod mini and it's got kind of a, a, a band design so it doesn't cover up um the sound uh, it, it covers that up a little bit, but uh, it doesn't seem like it would affect the overall audio. And then in the back, it has a way to uh, conceal and manage your power cord. And that comes up and plugs in. And then it also includes a USB-C cable that is used to power up the battery on the device and you just plug that into your original wall adapter. So basically the HomePod mini cord wraps up under the base and then plugs into the back and then you plug in to the power wall adapter and that charges the battery and then when you're ready to go, you can just unplug that, take the whole unit with you and they say it offers up to nine hours of portable use with 20 hours 
of standby. And the whole thing costs about $42 US, so not too expensive um, for a nice long-lasting battery. And it turns your HomePod mini into a little portable speaker that you can take into various rooms. You know, if you want to have it for your shower in the morning, take it off your nightstand, take it into the bathroom with you. You can have music as you get ready for the day. So there's a lot of really cool little uses for this. Obviously, it needs to be connected to Wi-Fi because it's a HomePod, so it's really for use around the house. Um, but yeah, if you don't want to invest in a bunch of HomePods to get in every room or you just want to have something maybe you can you know, take into another space, this is a really, really great option. So it's the battery base for HomePod Mini from Mission Accessories. Uh, big thank you to Brian for sending this one in because I thought it was really cool and I had no idea this product existed. So that's what this is all about. If you have a thing of the moment, a piece of software, a tip or trick it could even be, or just something you've run across that's kind of changed your life and made an impact in your Apple Mac ecosystem, let us know about it. Shoot me an email or even better yet, an audio comment. Try to keep it to two or three minutes maccast at gmail.com but with that that is going to do it for this episode of the maccast thanks for hanging out with me before i leave you i do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor smile makers of text expander you can check out their software by going to textexpander.com slash podcast bandwidth for the maccast is provided by cashfly you can find them at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com and all advertising on the on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at backbeatmedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone, num- phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IAM9. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on Instagram, just maccast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. 